Um, so as you could hear from the, the reading of that scripture, those two psalms that really are meant to go together, this is a pretty intense passage of scripture. Um, I didn't purposely pick this for Father's Day, like, hey, fathers, you're going to uh, be downcast. Um, I'm just helping out because um, Pastor Randy's sick, and so it's coincidence. Um, this is not a light passage, though. This is what one ancient writer summarized as the dark night of the soul. And so before we get too far into what this passage has to show us, I want to just remind us of what Paul told us in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for correcting, for training in righteousness, which means God put this intense passage in our hands for a specific reason. And so I think one of the main reasons that we have this psalm is to show us how to sing in the darkness. When we long to feel the presence of God in our lives, but he feels distant. This is a song. This psalm is meant to be sung. It's meant to be sung with difficult times in mind. And so this psalm shows us what we need to overcome the storms of life when we've lost our job, when we're sick, when a loved one is diagnosed with an illness, when we've been ridiculed for our faith, when we feel like everything is going against us, or we just sort of feel worn down by living through a global pandemic in which normal has shifted and it just kind of wears us out. But I want you to see more than anything that this psalm shows us a pattern of how to preach to ourselves, how to sing the enduring truths of who God is, what his love has done for us, and how that can remind us of what is actually true and what is not. This psalm reminds us, among other things, that it's okay to ask God why. Why is this happening? How long is this going to last, God? This psalm reminds us that periods of spiritual drought are common and to be expected and even purposed by God for the life of the believer. And, and I want us to notice, please don't miss, that these psalms end with no relief in sight. There's no happy ending yet. Because isn't that true about the difficulty that we in that we, we find ourselves in? What makes it difficult oftentimes is that we do not see a clear end in sight. Which makes the final point of what this psalm has to show us so important that in the middle of this, we still have an enduring hope in God alone. Reason to sing praise to him. And so those are kind of the big ideas. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll kind of look at these in a little bit more detail. God, you are so good. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness in your word. God, I pray that you take away distractions from our life. I pray that you give us a spirit that is open to receive from what your word has to show us this morning. I pray that we may leave this morning renewed in our hope in you alone, God, with praises of your grace uh, refreshed on our lips. In your name I pray. Amen. 
I just want to reread verse 1 and 2 and, and point out that this is showing us a very real thirst that is going on. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. It says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And so the first thing that we can see is that the psalmist has a true thirst for God. As one commentary puts it, only a soul indwelt by the Holy Spirit can pant after God or can thirst after God. And so yes, there will be dry seasons of life in the life of a believer, and that's what we're going to look at in just a moment. But here we also find a sort of warning we find a warning that if your soul does not strongly desire thirst after God, there's a warning that something is wrong. Listen, this world is full of artificial thirst quenchers. I heard recently that in America, we are able to stream over 500 different types of programming on any given day. 500. And that the typical average screen time of an American is between two and four hours per day. We have constant access to electronic devices, news cycles, sports scores, whatever time waster you want to fill in the blank. Uh, I'm not anti-TV or smartphone. I don't mean go home and throw away your TV and get a flip phone. That's not what my point is. I, I want to just point out that there's a very real danger that when we begin to feel distant from God, that thirst for God, instead of following the psalmist's advice that we're going to look at this morning, what we can do is easily just click on a screen and start to scroll and let the endless entertainment drain our God-given thirst away. So there's a warning here that entertaining can actually help us be distracted from forgetting that we have a thirst for God. Look, thirst is good. What does thirst do? It tells us something is wrong. Something's not as it should be. Should be. Jesus in, himself told us in Matthew 5, 6 that we should hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's a good thing. So there's a warning here. Christian, if beware of a loss of thirst for the things of God. Now, I want us also to notice the imagery here in verse 1, as the deer panteth after waters. Now, if you're like me, around my age or, or even older, you probably are familiar with the chorus that was sung, um, and I remember singing it in high school and college, and it was a good chorus, and, and I don't know about you, but in my mind, I had this image of like sound of music when I sang as the deer panteth after water, and there's meadows, and there's a deer, and a butterfly lands on his, on his back, and it's just this idyllic sort of scene in my mind. That is absolutely not what we have in this passage. The image here is a deer that is desperate. It is a deer that is nearly mad with thirst. It is panting after water. This is not a lush mountain scene, but rather a hot desert barrenness. You see, I didn't understand when I was younger in high school and college what would have been really obvious to the audience here 
uh, or anyone who didn't grow up in a city like me, and that is that deer know where water is. It's their habit to go to water. And so this scene here in verse 1 and 2 is actually one of desperation. We see an intense thirst. The deer has gone to the normal watering holes and found them empty. It's rushed to the streams of refreshment only to find dry rocks. And so this tells us that the psalmist in many ways has done what normally brings a sense of nearness to God, but for some reason continues to feel a distant feeling from God. And so, brother and sister, I'm guessing that if you have walked with the Lord for very long, you can relate to this experience. And I need to say right from the beginning that this is a common experience in the Christian life. Listen, feeling distant from God does not only come from unrepentant sin. Now, obviously, pause. If you're walking in unrepentant sin, that is going to cause isolation from God, but, but that's not what this is talking about. Sometimes you just feel distant. Sometimes you search for God, you dive into his word, and he still doesn't feel as close as he once did. Sometimes you feel overwhelmed by circumstances. Uh, we see in this passage, it feels like enemies are all around him, and they probably literally were. Sometimes you feel like your emotions are actually fighting against you. Verse 10 tells us that he feels like the, the despair is actually springing from his own bones. And so I want to tell us from the beginning, if you feel that anxiety, that difficulty, that depression, that distance from God, you're not alone. This psalm was written for us to experience and understand how to navigate those seasons. Um, Verse 2 to 3 continues, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Well, they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Now, now look at verse 3 and take comfort in a God that does not want us to hide our true emotions, even when we don't have our emotions figured out. I mean, this psalmist repeats three times, why are you so downcast, oh my soul? Uh, In other words, he's saying like, why can't I get it together? I know I need to hope in God. I know God is my salvation, but I just can't shake this feeling that I feel right now. The psalm reminds us, be honest with God about your feelings. We don't have to put on a brave face for God, pretend we don't have questions. Look, The psalmist asks a very direct and bold question in verse 9. Look at what he says. I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? In other words, he's saying it feels like nothing is going right. God, help me out here. And so what we see here are two sides of how we should understand our emotions. And I want to be careful to say that we need to avoid the extremes on both sides. We need to avoid the extreme of putting on a happy face and saying nothing's wrong when really it is wrong and we don't feel right. And on the other side, we need to be careful of letting our emotions rule us, of letting our emotions guide us, of saying, I don't feel like going to church today, so I'm not going to go. 
just doesn't feel right. We need to develop a habit of filtering our emotions through what the Word of God has to say and holding on to the truths of who God is and what He wants for us, of singing deep songs, not catchy pop song, bumper sticker sort of theology. We're talking deep songs of who God is in these dark times. Look at verse 9 and then verse 11 to help see that connection. Verse 9, it says, I say to my God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of my enemy. He's honest in saying it feels horrible. I feel forgotten. I feel just oppressed on all sides. And then in verse 11, he starts to preach to himself. He starts to remind himself of that deep reality. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. These are the big movements that we see in this psalm that he's, he's wrestling with. And so I want to spend the most, of our, most of the rest of our time really looking at what the psalmist does with these emotions, with these feelings, with these realities, with this feeling of brokenness, sorrow, and see how he filters it through his understanding of who God is. But before we get there, we need to pause and remind ourselves that our perspective of who God is absolutely must come from Scripture. We cannot let our own hearts or culture around us dictate who God is or how God should be. We have to let the Scriptures speak to who God is. To boil it down to this passage, I want to ask you, does your view of God, who God is, allow for a God who is a perfectly loving Father, who is at the same time one who actually wills for us to experience difficulty, persecution, pain, and sometimes even this feeling of feeling distant from God that, and at the same time that he remains a gracious and merciful father. Verse 7 is a difficult verse to process if you cannot accept that reality. Look at, look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, literally water spouts. It's the idea of like a typhoon type storm coming out of the deep ocean. At the roar of your waterfalls, all of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Listen, who is the source in this verse of the deepest deeps? of these waterfalls, of these breakers and waves. Whose are they? Yours. They're God's. This is a stunning image, church. It's the imagery of a storm. Now here, we live in Maui, and so you may have experienced being caught in breakers or high surf before. To confess, a little embarrassed, I uh, lived in Maui before. I came back. I said, I'm just going to jump right back into Paia Bay, no problem. After not being in high surf for a while, winter time, I found myself, if you've been there, they don't come in even sets. So you come under, 
oh my goodness, I better get back down. It's going to crush me. I can remember thinking, starting off thinking, this is great. I have this. I got it. This is fun. And in moments, I remember thinking, get me out of here. This is horrible. I'm in over my head. This is not going to end well. Get me out of here. So I want us to remember, Christian, even our own Savior experienced that emotion. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to God, if there's any other way, get me out of here. But not my will, yours be done. He shared in that emotion with us. And we see this pattern over and over through the scripture that God does not promise to keep us from suffering, but rather he, re- he promises to remain with us, our anchor, our steadfast tower in the suffering, in the difficulty, sustaining us. And what is more, he actually promises to turn these sufferings, these sorrows, these difficulties on their head in order to make us more like Christ. That is amazing. James 1, 2 through 4 says this, count it all joy. When was the last time you counted it all joy? (laughs) My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let the steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The more that we trust in Jesus, the more that we're able to return and say he's proven himself true. I'm going to be steadfast. That's the God of the Bible. A God who is in such complete control, he is able to use suffering and pain and sorrow to work something beautiful. God can turn hurtful, damaging effects of sin completely around in order to make us stronger and more conformed to the image of Christ. That's what James is reminding us of. And so in the midst of our personal pain, in a longing for relief, panting after streams, it's easy to lose sight that God willed, wanted, for the greatest injustice this world has ever seen, the greatest evil this world has ever seen, to be completed in the death of his son in order to bring the greatest good of salvation that could ever be imagined. So what Satan means for devastation in Christ, what, they, what he wanted to ruin Christ's plan, what he wants to devastate our lives, God can turn to bring redemption. So, so those are the problems that we're looking at here in this passage that the psalmist is encountering, that we encounter, that sometimes there are periods of spiritual drought. Sometimes in verse 6, Uh, you feel disconnected from the body of Christ. In verse 6, he's literally not allowed to return to God's house. Um, And then in verse 9 and 10, he's oppressed openly by his enemies, ridiculed. Where's your God? And this affects, this outward oppression has an inward effect on his emotional well-being. So it's outward and inward. And so, so we need to look at the solution, the hope that this psalm offers to that. Um, and that's really what I want us to reflect on the rest of this morning. 
What is the hope that it gives us? What is the encouragement it gives us? What should we meditate on? Because what we see here is a pattern, a, a powerful weapon for how to interact when we are feeling spiritually dry, depressed, anxious, like we're in the middle of the storm. These are the deep songs that we sing in dark times. So let's look at the first thing. The first thing is that he remembers the source of his joy in worshiping God with fellow believers. He says it two times in these two psalms. In verse 4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul when? How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. And then in 43, Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Where does God's truth lead us? Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with lyre, O God, my God. One of the oldest tactics of the enemy is to isolate us from fellowship with the local church. That's when we're weakened. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, we're not sure exactly who it might be, but um, in Hebrews 10, it says this, let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works. What's one reason? Not neglecting, verse 25, meeting together as some of us are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as the day draws near. So what if you don't feel like going to church one day? But if you just wake up and you're just like, I just don't feel like it, don't neglect meeting together. Of course, I, I don't want to be legalistic here. If you're sick, we're praying for Pastor Randy. He is sick. That's why you're stuck with me. Um, he's sick. If you're traveling, if you're in an airplane, we're not trying to be legalistic here. What, what I just want to say is we can't let our feelings be our guide. I, I, honestly, probably at least once a month, I wake up with this deceitful heart of mine saying, just skip church. It's just one day. Listen, skip church. You get extra quiet time at home. There's that podcast you can listen to, that one pastor. He's really funny. Maybe that would be better for you. I'm overwhelmed with people. I'm around people all during the week. And so if I go to church, I'm going to be stressed. There's too many people. I just need my, my time. I'm going to disconnect. Don't let your feelings rule whether you should participate in the local body. Don't neglect meeting together. Stir one another up towards love and good deeds. This is one of the ways that this author of this psalm tells us this is how we fight for joy. He says in 43.3, Send out your light and your truth. Darkness is around him. He's oppressed. It feels like the night of his soul. Send out your truth, and it's going to lead me, 43.3, to your holy hill, to your dwelling, and there I will find the God of my exceeding joy. Don't neglect meeting together, number one. Um, and, and we see here just a pattern my sinful response to stress, to difficulty, to anything tends to be, I'm going to give up. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to take a time out. I'm going to take like a spiritual vacation. I feel stressed, so I'm just going to like 
I need my my time. It's better if I'm just alone. I'm going to check out from church for a month. I'm going to do whatever. It doesn't seem to be helping with my immediate need, but the reality is we need to do the exact opposite. We need to dive into the body. Um, Number two, the next thing that he says he does to remember the source of his joy is he remembers God's steadfast love. Listen, the root of most temptation begins with this attack against the truth that God loves us and wants the best for us. Isn't that how Satan began in the Garden of Eden? Did God really say, does God really want the best for you? Look, if you ate this fruit, you could be like him. He's not looking out for you. He doesn't really love you. And so we need a constant reminder of the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse 8, it says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and by night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Listen, this attack in verse 3, that's repeated in verse 10, that says, Where is your God? With this subtle connotation, listen, if your God's real, if he really loved you, he would not allow you to suffer like this. This attack, we can respond with confidently, I'm going to remind myself of the steadfast love of the Lord. I'm going to sing that song in the night. This is my prayer to the God of my life. This passage is showing us that in these moments when it feels like God is not there, when fellowship feels distant, when you feel like you can't even sleep at night, you're anxious, turn that time to prayer. Remind yourself, preach to yourself of God's steadfast love for you. Number three, the psalmist here remembers the source of his joy in God's light and God's truth. That comes from 43.3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Listen, we live in a world right now in which the absolute truths of the Bible are under constant attack. Uh, maybe 20 years or so ago, a lot of the attack was trying to come from the realm of, you know, logic. Science has disproven creation. Logic proves this. I honestly think most of the attack today is not even based in logic, but based in feeling. And it's really against this idea that there is such a thing as an absolute truth given from God. That's really where the attack begins. We live in a culture today. Tell me if this phrase sounds familiar. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Find your truth and live it. How many of you have heard that phrase before? I think Oprah just did an interview where she celebrated that idea. Find your truth. Live your truth. And on the surface, it actually sounds like accommodating if you don't dig very deep. It suggests, you know, we can all get along. We can all pretty much do what we want. We can all live our own truth unless you were to suggest in love and in gentleness, listen, friend, your personal truth is false. And I know that because the truth that I am anchored to is given to me by the author and creator of the universe. 
and I care so much about you, I'm not going to let you think that you can create truth. And sadly, in the name of inclusivity, our culture says, ironically, we exclusively reject an absolute standard of Christian truth. Nonetheless, we need to stand on it. Let your light, let your truth guide me, not my definition of truth. Jesus told us about as plainly as he could the most fundamental nature of truth. What does he say in John 14, 6? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only way to be reconciled to the Father and have life. Now listen, the world around us might hear that declaration of truth and say, that doesn't sound very inclusive. And I would say that's absolutely wrong because the invitation includes all people. The invitation to believe, to repent, to trust in Christ as your Savior alone is extended to all peoples and all nations. That invitation is inclusive of everybody. It includes everybody. But isn't the message exclusive? Yes. Absolutely yes. But we can't miss that many, many of the best things in our world are, inclu are excuse me, exclusive. Quick, quick story to, to illustrate this. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, um, and when I was older, I used to go jogging through the forest, or through the forest, there was no forest, in the jungle, <laughs> not in the jungle, in the desert, there was not much cactus and um, rattlesnakes. And I can remember clearly jogging in the early mornings of the hour and as I passed a trail, hearing a rattle. That's a scary feeling when you've put yourself out on a trail all by yourself. So I remember looking back and seeing curled up on the side of the trail a rattlesnake. Striking position, curled, ready. And I looked back and right next to him was my footprint. And I thought, Ooh, what would I do if I had gotten bitten by a rattlesnake? Would I have wanted someone to take me to the hospital to see a doctor where the doctor says, you know what, I have lots of medication. Choose what you think is best. Whatever medication seems to work for you, you pick. How would I have felt with that kind of counsel I would have wanted, I would have been desperate for, I would have needed the only singular cure for a rattlesnake bite, which is anti-venom taken from a rattlesnake. I, I'm a science teacher, so a little bit of geeky science facts here. Only anti-venom from that specific snake can actually cure you. There's only one remedy. It's exclusive. And it's incredibly good. It's life-saving. So please, brothers and sisters, do not let our culture influence us into believing that just because a truth is exclusive, 
in saying Christ is our only Savior that it is not at the same time incredibly good and saving. Our culture is confused on this fact. Um, the last thing, number four. Number four. The psalmist remembers that the source of his joy, he repeats it three times. It's like the hammer, strike, refrain, remember this. In verse 5, verse 11, in chapter 43, verse 5, he repeats it again and again and again. Don't miss this. He says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's like the advice that Paul gives after having done everything, stand. Continue to hope in God. And Christian, I want to just ask you, hasn't he proven himself time and time again when you look back in your life and your walk with him? Haven't you found in your own life that the hymn is true? All other hopes are sinking sand. So preach to yourself, brother. Preach to yourself, sister. Hope in God alone. Temptation tells us, try something else. God is not enough. It's not working. So we need to constantly remind our wandering hearts time and time again of his steadfast love, of his mercy, of his good salvation hope in God. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Listen, what our praising of God does, it doesn't ignore the difficulty. It doesn't ignore the stress, the anxiety, the depression, the dryness. It doesn't ignore that, but it puts our focus back on God. And it helps us to remember who he is. Remember the pain and the sorrow that this psalmist is feeling is very real. It is that crushing weight in his bones. You can almost feel it as you read. And what is the solution? Hope in God. Sing praises to God. He is our sure and steady hope. He is the salvation of our lives and our God. We find similar themes to this all throughout the Psalms and the Scriptures, but I just want to share one other psalm, two verses from Psalm 73 that sort of mirror this, it, this advice, this pattern that we need to have in our lives. Psalm 73, 25 through 26, it's at the end of a psalm that's really similar. The, the, the wicked are prospering, the righteous are suffering, everything seems to be backwards, it's not working out, things are bad, and this is what this psalmist preaches to himself. Psalm 73, 25 through 26, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength and my portion, my remedy, my inheritance forever. Fellow believer, um, I pray that this might be true of us as a church. Even when we're desperate for the Lord, we feel like we're in the middle of a spiritual drought. Even when we feel like enemies are crashing in around us, questioning us, saying, where is your God? When we feel crushed down with anxiety or stress or depression, sing to yourself this song. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my God and my salvation. In the middle of 
of the deepest storm, there is a strong tower. There is a rock that stands in the middle of the raging storm. Hope in God. I shall again praise him, my salvation in my God. Let us pray. God, you are good. You have given us this psalm to encourage us to keep fighting the good fight. You have given us this psalm to remind us of the necessity of being a part of the body. That we could find joy and fellowship with each other in singing your praises, God. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning that is feeling like they are walking through it, just a dry season or anxious or feel like everything is against them, God, I pray that they might find their hope in God. Lord, let us be a people that just communicate to the world around us, the community around us. Look, we aren't the answer. We don't have it all figured out, but our hope is firmly placed in God. In your name I pray, amen.